Thanks, Norton. Um, that was amazing. Thanks, Tom, for coordinating that, and Haley. So good to, to be working with you, and so grateful for your work there, and and uh, and grateful for Pastor Antonio and and the hardships that he's enduring and facing. Um, it's more difficult doing work just in a normal time uh, there, and and he's been so faithful through the years. Um, so great to see what he's doing and, and grateful to be part of that. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's so good to look out and just see people's faces. And um, I, I, I'm constantly reminded during this time that there are many things that have been taken away from us, uh, many things that we, we miss and that we're um, lamenting having to go through. But there are so many good things, too, that, um, that I think we find within the brokenness um, and certainly this is not the way we want it to be. I, I look forward to all of us being together again. I look forward to being able to travel uh, to see Pastor Antonio and Kata and, and Nancy and Pedro and the whole family uh, there in, in San Pablo. Um, but this is good. This is so good to be able to look out and to see uh, new friends and old friends coming together uh, and to know that we are connected together uh, through our faith in Jesus and grateful to be here together with you guys. Uh, so we're continuing today, um, as we jump into the, the, the message for today, we're going to continue on this series, in the series that we've been in the last two weeks, called Common Practices. And the series has been guided by the book Common Rule, uh, which was written by a guy named Justin Whitmill Early, who is actually, he's not a, he used to be a missionary, but now he's a lawyer. And he wrote this book um, pseudo-autobiographically uh, as a way that he found uh, to, to create some structure for his life through through um, practicing rhythms that would help him uh, both live out his faith more faithfully but but also to to bring some peace and some um, some um, health into his life uh, that had just gotten out of control and the hope for this series for all of us is that in a time where a lot of our daily routines have just been turned upside down uh, that we can actually start intentionally forming some new habits that are going to help us grow in our relationship with God and with others now um, but also help us as we move into whatever the future is going to look like. You know, this is not the way it is going to be forever. There's going to be phases to this and stages. And it's probably going to go on for a while. And so as we think about just pursuing life, pursuing health, pursuing relationships, pursuing growth in our faith, uh, we think that, that this, uh, this series, this, uh, this set of practices guided by this book can be really helpful. And if you're new, if you missed the last couple of weeks, it's not a, not a problem every week. Uh, we we put all of our message, messages online so that you can you can go back and catch up on those or you can go to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts uh, and and also each week kind of stands on its own it's a practice that you can learn about and even practice and go and do uh, without having to know about the whole the whole picture uh, we are reading the book uh, some of us uh, are reading along with the book if you want to pick that up you certainly can uh, getting it is more complicated if you want the physical book uh, the ebook is easy to get uh, you can get that on Amazon but um, actually getting the physical book may, may be more difficult, but it's sort of an optional thing anyway. So last week we talked about the first daily practice, the practice of daily prayer. Um, that is taking time um, to pray in the morning, somewhere in the middle of the day, and then in the evening before we go to bed. So just real quick without kind of soliciting or opening it up for, for anybody to share, but maybe just thumbs up, thumbs down. How did it go? Did, did you guys engage with this okay i'm seeing some thumbs up matt i see that yeah I, I get a little bit of that you know kind of in the middle and that's okay like one thing i would say 
is this will require this whole series and engaging new new habits or creating new habits and, and new practices. Um, it's going to require some some perseverance. You may have heard people say that it takes 21 days to form a habit, but truthfully, it takes at least 21 days. Sometimes it can take longer, depending on the habit and depending on the person. Um, and so I would just say as we go through this series, number one, we're exposing you to a lot of different practices, and we don't expect that all of these things are going to stick. So as you try them, and as you, you go through each week trying something new, trying to decide what you keep and what you 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 aren't able to keep go keep doing just remember that you're always going to be able to come back to this and we hope that you'll be able to start to shape and to form your own set of practices it, but it's going to take time it's going to take time to be able to make these things a uh, default behavior um, but while it does take time we do know that all habits form the same way all of our habits good and bad have formed in us the same way small changes when they're done consistently over time, do result in new habits being formed. And it's helpful to understand a little bit more about the process of how habits are actually formed. All habits form with a pretty simple process. There's three steps. So there's a cue or a craving that, that triggers us, that, that initiates some response. And we respond to that cue or craving with some action that, that creates a behavior. The cue or response initiates a behavior. And when that action produces some kind of a, a reward, our brain remembers it. And then the cue response is actually deepened. So this is why for so many of us, coffee is one of the first things that we go to every day in the morning. Because the alarm clock goes off, we feel tired, and then we go to the coffee pot, we get a cup of coffee, and what happens? We feel awake. We feel more awake, and caffeine works to wake us up. And as our default response to that cue deepens, as we do that over and over and over again, you can even begin to change the cue slightly. So, so this is why sometimes you get tired at work and you feel kind of sleepy, slumping at your desk, and you, your brain thinks, hey, some of that black stuff, put that in me and we'll feel better. But that also illustrates how habits can easily become bad habits or even addictions, especially if there's a chemical substance involved, one that's fairly addictive like caffeine. So at some point your body doesn't just want caffeine to wake up, it actually needs it. The more you drink, the more you need. And that can actually become a problem. It can begin to cause other health problems like headaches or dehydration, high blood pressure, insomnia, all of those kind of negative things that you know about. But here's the good news. This habit loop, knowing how our response to feeling tired drives us to coffee, knowing that that's a habit that has been formed and knowing how it was formed can actually be really useful to our advantage. How, how is that an, an advantage, just knowing it? Well, first, you can understand, if you understand how a habit is formed, you can begin to think about how you change that habit. So the first step is to become aware of those default behaviors and habits, knowing what it is, what are the cues or the cravings that set you off. And then you can actually choose a different behavior. Now, it's not going to be easy, but if you choose a behavior that provides a similar reward in a new way, then that cue response is going to get deepened as well. So maybe instead of getting up and going right to the coffee pot every morning, maybe you go for a walk or, or for a run. 
Maybe you put your workout clothes and your shoes right by the bed to provide a reminder. So when, you're, so when your alarm clock goes off and your head thinks, go to the coffee pot, you see your workout clothes and you're reminded, I don't want to go just drink more coffee. I want to go for a walk and that'll help me wake up. Wake up. And so that's a way that we can begin to shift and change and replace old habits with new ones. Now, this is why last week when I introduced the first habit of daily prayer, three times a day, I suggest that recognizing habits that you already have and then sort of connecting a new habit onto it is way easier than just starting or creating a new habit from scratch. So specifically, leveraging the deep hold that our electronic devices already have on us. So our phones, um, all of our you know uh, various electronic helpers, I, I unplugged Alexa this week, so she can't say anything. So I just said Alexa, so yours is probably going off, but mine is not, which is good. But whichever ones, whichever things you use, we're using all of these technological tools to be able to help remind us of different things, but we can actually harness that for good. We can actually begin to ask the, these devices to remind us. And, and if we grab our phone early in the morning, if we wanna pray in the morning, maybe it's good to have uh, an app on our phone to help us pray so that we have an alternative, an easy alternative to email or news or games or social media. So I share all of this information about how we can shape or change existing habits because this will be useful as we go along. But the next daily practice, the one we're gonna talk about today, it's gonna require us to change some deeply ingrained patterns around something that we all do every day, multiple times a day already but it's gonna require us to shape and to change that habit if we wanna take on this new practice. And the thing that we do every day that we don't even think about more than any other is eating meals. We all eat meals every day. Uh, maybe more than others, some, maybe some of you eat three meals a day, maybe some of you only eat two, uh, maybe when you eat is different, but all of us, we don't really have to think or be reminded about eating, do we? We don't need our phones or devices to remind us our bodies do that for us. Our bodies tell us when we're hungry and we respond to that cue by going to get something to eat. So we don't have a lot, we don't need a lot of reminders about the action of eating, but we do have a lot of choices about what we eat, about where we eat it, and about how we eat the meals that we consume every single day. So this week, the second habit that Justin introduces in the book is the habit of eating at least one meal a day with other people. Now, depending on your regular routine and how you eat meals now, that practice may sound easy, but it might actually sound, might actually be more difficult than you first think. You see, increasingly in American society, we are choosing to eat more and more of our meals alone. According to a study done by the Food Marketing Institute, Americans currently eat about half of all of their meals alone. And that number has been steadily increasing over the years. Um, it has become more and more socially the norm to eat on our own, at our desk, in the car, on the go, after we pick up some takeout, or even in restaurants. Restaurants are beginning to cater and create more bar seating and more spaces. It's becoming more acceptable to see people uh, sitting at alone in restaurants and just scrolling on their phone or, or reading a book. Um, eating a meal by themselves. That didn't used to be as socially normal or acceptable. Now, obviously, quarantine has impacted a lot of our choices. 
Uh, but the trend leading up to quarantine is unmistakable. And if things were to open up tomorrow, I'm guessing that wouldn't change that much. More and more of us are eating alone than ever before. And hey, I get it. I, I mean, I understand that I do this a lot. There's a lot of reasons that we all choose to eat alone at times. Sometimes it's faster to just grab a protein bar or a piece of fruit or something on your way out the door. If you even eat breakfast at all, I usually skip breakfast. That's just, I know it's most important meal of the day. I've heard it my whole life, but I'm not hungry in the morning. So usually I just don't eat. Um, usually, you know, a lot of days it's more productive to grab something quick to eat some, heat up some leftovers or, or eat something, a sandwich or something, just sitting at your desk so you can get more work done and get done sooner to be more productive. And I know for us, one of the things we've talked about that quarantine has impacted my family and maybe it has yours as well is with all of the kids activities and, and kids being pulled in different directions and family, you know, spouses having to divide and conquer to be able to get kids to all the activities that they have. Sometimes it's impossible to sit down for a traditional family meal. Um, while I miss soccer and, and volleyball and um, flag football and skateboard camp and all the things that, that my kids were doing before, um, I love that we've had the space to actually be able to eat more meals together without that competition. And yet, even during quarantine, with my wife and kids just a few feet away, there have been days that I have eaten every meal on my own. It's more convenient, it's more efficient, and easier. But for all of our gains in productivity or efficiency, or just getting a little bit of quiet time to scroll on our phone or be on our own, the question is, what are we giving up? What is it that we're losing or missing out on when we eat alone? Well, to answer this question, I want to go to the Bible and take a look at Jesus's life and his as an example and ask the question, what was Jesus's relationship with food and, and with meals? What can we learn when we look at his life? Well, when you go back and you read through the four accounts of Jesus's life and you begin to look at all the references that are made to food or meals, when you begin to look for them, you begin to see they're everywhere. They're throughout all of the accounts of his life. In Luke's account of Jesus's life in particular, there's 10 different times where Luke retells something significant that happens over a meal. And you have to remember that, that, you know, that these writers, they're picking and choosing from all the things that happened in Jesus's life. John, in fact, even says in his account, he says, you know, if we were to write down everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did, there's no way every book in the world would hold them all. We had to choose these particular things. And so for some reason, they chose a lot of accounts of Jesus eating and drinking with people, hanging out, having meals. And when you read through Luke's account in particular, you begin to feel like if Jesus isn't at a meal, he isn't sitting there eating one. He's actually going to one or coming from one. And these meals are always with other people. And if he's not eating a meal, he's talking about meals. He, he has lots of stories that end in feasts or banquets. Several of his stories and parables involve food or meals. In his book, A Meal with Jesus, the author Tim Chesters argues pretty persuasively, I think, that the meals weren't incidental to Jesus' life. This wasn't just a coincidence or happenstance that the gospel writers chose all of these accounts about Jesus eating, that actually meals were integral. They were central to Jesus's mission. Let me ask you this. If I were to ask you to complete the sentence, Jesus came, dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? Jesus came for what? What did Jesus come to do? If you're familiar with the Bible, 
and the stories of Jesus's life, a lot of things may be coming to your mind. You may be remembering comments or, or statements that Jesus made about why he came. Maybe you can even think about some of the verses. There's a ver verse in Luke where Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost. Where Then there's the verse in Mark where he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John, he says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full, a full abundant life. He also said in Matthew that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then in Luke, he makes an interesting statement. In responding to some critics, he says, the son of man came eating and drinking. The son of man was a messianic title that Jesus claimed for himself. Now, in his book, Chester points out, his book, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester points out that these first four statements from Jesus are purpose statements. Jesus in these verses are telling us why he came. But the fifth statement is a statement about method. Jesus in, in commenting that, that he came eating and drinking is acknowledging something about his approach, how he did what he did. Let's look at the whole verse there. Responding to his critics, Jesus actually says in Luke 7, 34, he says this, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So son of man here, again, is a messianic title that Jesus is claiming for himself. He's claiming to be the anticipated coming king of, of Israel, one anointed by God to rule Israel and the nations. But how does he say he's coming? If this is who he is, how is he coming? Is he coming in power or might? with an army to claim his kingdom by force? Is he coming from heaven, raining down lightning bolts on his enemies? No. Jesus says the son of man come, comes eating and drinking. Apparently not just a little bit. His enemies are accusing him of being a glutton, somebody who eats too much, and a drunkard, someone who drinks too much. So in this verse, Sitting actually at a meal, he responds to this at a meal with his critics. He's actually acknowledging this. He says he owns it. He, he just says, comes right in and says he does enjoy long meals and good wine. And he does eat with all the wrong sorts of people. Tax collectors, prostitutes, non-believers, sinners. He acknowledges it because it was true. Over and over and over again, this is what we see Jesus doing with the time that's recorded about his life. In the three years of his most productive ministry life, Jesus spent a lot of time eating and drinking, and he did it with all the wrong people. And as with most things, when you read through Jesus's, the accounts of Jesus' life, you begin to see that everything Jesus did had so much intentionality in it. And for Jesus, meals were the place that he could have accomplish two, his two broad purposes, mission and community. These were two the, the meals that helped Jesus to accomplish his two broadest goals or purposes, mission and community. So what was Jesus's mission? If we go back to the, the purpose statements, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. He said that at a, at a dinner with, with a notorious tax collector named Zacchaeus. He said he came to serve, not to be served. He said he came to bring life, to bring abundant life. He preached and proclaimed that God's kingdom was actually open and available to everyone. 
regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, their ethnicity or what socioeconomic status, whether they're rich or poor, everybody was invited. They just had to acknowledge their need for grace and forgiveness and receive it. The only ones who wouldn't get in, Jesus said, who wouldn't be a part of God's kingdom, were those who already thought that they were in and that they deserved to be in and that they didn't actually want to be there if all those disreputable people would be. So meals became a primary way for Jesus to demonstrate this. So in the ancient Near East, somewhat as today, I think we have a less of a hospitable culture, maybe than even in the current, in the, in the Middle East today. But in the ancient Near East, meals were very personal. To, to eat with someone was to align yourself with them, to, to acknowledge them and embrace them in a way that, that said you affirmed them. So eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and other unclean people, Jesus was demonstrating that God's kingdom was for everyone. He sat with them and embraced them and brought them near. He brought people who were far away on the edges, the fringes of society. He brought them close to him. And then what about community? His second sort of broad, big purpose. As he welcomed this diverse collection of people to the table to share food together, to share drinks together, he was accomplishing his mission to reach to the outcasts of society. And in bringing this diverse group of people together, he was deepening his relationship with them. And he was bringing them together in relationship with one another. Enemies became, became friends at the table with Jesus. People became closer to one another. He was creating a new community out of this diverse set of this hodgepodge of misfits. And he wasn't just creating a, a group of friends. It was like he, they were a family. So much so that he said anybody, anyone who followed him, anyone who received the grace and became a part of this kingdom that he was talking about, were like brothers and sisters, as much as flesh and blood siblings were. And on several occasions, he made it clear that these gatherings, these meals that they were enjoying together were a picture of something greater and more significant. He, he hearkened back to the promise that God made long ago through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. Jesus was saying these, these meals that we're eating together, they're not, just, they're not just meals. They're a foretaste of something greater, of God's coming kingdom, which will be like a great banquet. It's a feast with all the best food and all the best wine. And on that day, at that table, all the walls and the divisions that exist between people, all the things that separate and divide us will be broken down. Death will be swallowed up by life. And God will soothe all of our pains, wipe away every tear from our faces, and remove every ounce of shame and disgrace. That's a picture of God's coming kingdom. And Jesus was in reenacting that, he was giving this, these people a foretaste of what that was going to look like. For Jesus, meals were, weren't just a means to consume food. They were so much more. And the reality is, they can be more for us as well. You see, 
if you're here today and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then his mission has been passed to us, the church. We believe that God's spirit dwells in us individually and as a community and that we're to do the same things that he did. To welcome those who are far from God, the outcasts, the marginalized, the poor, the discarded, the disreputable, our neighbors, our coworkers, the ones that we like, the ones that we don't like. We're supposed to welcome these people into our lives, to our table, to be an embodiment of God's love, both in word, but also in deed, by accepting them just as they are, not as they should be, because none of us, truthfully, none of us are as we should be. We recognize that we are accepted by God because of his love and his grace. And with this collection of misfits and sinners, which is what we all are, we're to be a part of building a new community, a community that sends a message to the world, this is what God's love is like. We're supposed to gather at tables to eat and to drink and to tell stories, to laugh together, to cry together until strangers become acquaintances, until acquaintances become friends and friends become family. That's what the church is supposed to be about. And there's no better place to do it than at a table over a good meal or even a bad meal. It doesn't matter because when we join together in community around a table, the food is somewhat less important. This is why our second daily habit that we're going to try to practice together is to eat at least one meal a day together with others. Now, for a lot of us, that could be easy. Maybe you already do this. Great. If you already have a daily meal that you, meet with, that you eat with roommates or friends or you eat with your family members, that's great. But for a lot of us, this is going to take changing some habits. Maybe right now, when the craving for food goes off in your brain, it sends you to get some leftovers from the fridge and then return to your computer to do work or returns you to the couch to watch a show. Maybe you just hit a drive through and eat in your car because that's just more efficient. It helps you to be more productive. And just to be clear, that's, sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we, we just need to get things done and eating in front of our computer allows us to do that. But we also need to acknowledge that something is lost when we eat alone. We only have a certain number of meals in our life that we're gonna to get to enjoy. And everyone that we choose to eat, our, eat alone, we just have to recognize we're sacrificing something for something else. We're giving up the opportunity to join God's mission and to build community when we choose to eat by ourselves. So what if at least one time a day, one time a day when that cue or craving for food goes off in us, instead of first thinking about what we were gonna eat or how we can do it as efficiently as possible to get the food into our stomach so that craving will go away and we'll be rewarded with efficiency and, and a full stomach. What if we began to think differently about our behavior? What if we started to think about who we could share that meal with? It might be a little less productive, might be a little less efficient, but over time, the rewards will also be much greater in terms of being a part of God's mission by, by connecting with people who, who are far from him and also building community with the people that God has given us to share life with. Just think back about some of the best memories that you have from your life. Think about some of your closest friendships, the best times that you've shared with friends and family. Wasn't food somehow involved? I mean, for me, I can't think about our time with Antonio and Kata in Guatemala 
without thinking about meals at, at their house with those long tables, baskets of hot tortillas that, that Kata just made by hand. This particular meal, this picture, this was with teachers from the school. And I can't help but laughing, thinking about helping to prepare that meal with, with Cody Paiva and, and he and I like hacking up chickens that we bought at the market that morning and then trying to figure out how to grill them so we could, we could make this meal, this celebration meal to celebrate the teachers. That's a fantastic memory and it centers around food. I, I can't help but thinking about my friends, Adam and Cody and Brian, without thinking about that time when we were celebrating the end of our D group and we ate two whole fried chickens at the post between four of us. And it was glorious. It was so good, so good. And I can't help but think about, when I think about my neighbors on my block, I can't think about them without thinking about getting to know them better over barbecue which is my love language, by the way. <laughs> I love barbecue and I love to make barbecue and I love to share it with other people. And so we, we've tried to do this every year, at least once a year to have a big barbecue in the front yard of our house where we invite our neighbors, everybody on our street to come and eat together and we get to know each other more. And I can't think about our neighbors without the times that they've reciprocated and invited us, like the time that our friends Jerry and Mary invited us other, over for their holiday turkey fry where we, we deep fried, seriously, like 10 turkeys for everybody who came. Bring your own turkey, we deep fried it so everybody would have a turkey to be able to enjoy on their own and we ate some together that night. And then my friend Rich, the guy in the cowboy hat, yes, he's from Texas, we, he brought a big bowl of batter and we deep fried Oreos and candy bars and Twinkies. It was glorious and my heart hated me for it, but it was delicious and it built relationships and community. Now, if you can't tell, I love food. I love a good meal. But a meal, it can be about so much more than just food. A meal can be about love and laughter and tears and all the good stuff of life that we share with one another. But it can only be that if we share it with other people. So I hope this week you'll take this to heart and begin trying to eat at least one meal a day with other people. And hey, I know. I know the quarantine has made this challenging and difficult. Maybe for a little while, it's just gonna be your family or your roommates or whoever you, you're, you live with that you're leading with. But hey, we're about to start entering into a new phase of this whole thing where things are starting to slowly open up and the guidelines are gonna allow small groups of people, 10 or less, right? To begin gathering together. Meals may be one of the best opportunities that we have as a church to gather. It may be the only opportunity that opportunities that we have for a while to gather as a church, to be able to follow the regulations and gather safely. And so there's a time that's coming where I think meals are going to become even more important. And hey, if you do end up eating alone, take it as an opportunity to pray. I've got a great prayer I'm going to post with this message that came from this book that I got that's got a collection of prayers. I'm going to share one at the end of this. It's called Every Moment Holy. And there's a prayer for eating a meal alone. And it's a great way to invite God to be with you and dine with you and also to be reminded that meals are better when shared together. So it's a, way to, a great way to do two things at once. If you can't eat, you can't eat with a, a group of people, then, then at least turn that into a prayer time so that you can, you can pray um, as a part of your meals. So as we, we come to the close of our service today, I can't think of a better way of doing that by sharing communion together. As Norton said earlier, um, we want you to get your, your communion elements together because we're going to take communion together now. You see, because meals were so important 
to, to, to Jesus. It's no wonder that when he wanted to give his followers a way of remembering him, that he asked, actually asked them to do it with a shared meal. That's what communion actually was intended to be. From everything that we can tell, this practice formed the basis of the early church, people gathering in homes, sharing a meal together, and doing what Jesus asked them to do. You see, on the, the last night that Jesus was together with his closest friends, they shared a special meal, a Passover meal together. Now, they had done this before, but this one was, was different. At this meal, so, which was so full of symbolism already, Jesus took the bread and he broke it that night, and he told them, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then as he poured the wine, which is done in a certain sequence at a, at a Passover meal, we're told that, that this was the cup after supper, probably the third cup in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he added, he said, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now, as it is our tradition each month, we're going to join together as a church family at the table of Jesus. And we're not able to do that physically together at the same table today, but we're going to do it together, collected here electronically. We're going to eat and drink and remember him. So as you eat the bread or the cracker or whatever you have, or drink the juice or the water or whatever, as you do that, as we share this meal together, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember Jesus and his sacrifice for us, the grace and forgiveness that binds us all together and makes us a family. And we look forward to the coming day in God's kingdom when we sit together at the great feast of the Lamb where Jesus will again pour the wine and we will raise our glass and toast to the King. So as Brian plays in a minute, we're going to eat and drink and remember our Savior, our friend, Jesus, the King who was and is to come. And as we prepare to do that, let's also say a prayer of confession together, remembering the forgiveness that we have in Him. So as so we say, as I say this, would you say it together with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen.